Welcome to episode 150 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we are taking another look at an X-Files parody that appeared on a different series, specifically episode 12 of Crusade, the Babylon 5 spinoff titled The Visitors from Down the Street. The original air date was August 25th, 1999. That was a Wednesday. Although that's a little bit fuzzy with this. Neither Babylon 5 nor Crusade were really network shows. Crusade more so than Babylon 5, but they were released through syndication, which means that August 25th is probably the first day it aired anywhere, but different stations could air it on different days, generally within the same week. And the IMDb user score is 7.6 out of 10. And the action primarily takes place in the Eridani sector. Before we get too much into this particular episode, we should probably talk about Babylon 5 and Crusade in general. So Babylon 5 was created by J. Michael Straczynski. It had already run its entire course by the time this episode hits. In fact, it launched with a made-for-TV movie called The Gathering in February of 1993. It was then picked up for a series that launched on January 26, 1994. So the first chapter was available before the first part of The X-Files, and then the series proper premiered slightly after it ran five seasons in the end. And I'll call it the first chapter. Early on, I did mention that The X-Files was one of the first serialized network shows, but Babylon 5 was in its syndication and is one of the most serialized shows in television history. There was The Gathering as kind of a pilot movie, followed by 110 episodes of the series proper, and then made-for-TV movies following it, this Babylon 5 spinoff titled Crusade. But if you were to watch the original Babylon 5, those 110 episodes have one logical viewing order. Each episode has a complete beginning, middle, and end, but they were tied more tightly than you would find in the vast majority of shows other than soap operas, at least prior to the popularity of Netflix and other streaming services, which have caused a shift in storytelling, particularly in cable and streaming services, now that it is reasonable to assume that the viewers have seen every episode in sequence. In the 1990s, that wasn't necessarily a reasonable assumption. And it comes out in the way this is done. Babylon 5 ran each season in a calendar year. So season 1 was in 1994, season 2 in 1995, 3 in 96, and so forth. And the production partners that they were paired with were in serious financial trouble, so it didn't look like there was going to be a season 5. Not because Babylon 5 itself was not successful, but because the parent company that they at that point were dependent on to produce the show was not in good shape. Series creator J. Michael Straczynski shopped it around a bit, couldn't find anyone right away, so they restructured things, thinking season 4 was going to be the last season and they weren't going to get to execute their five-year plan. Rather last minute, after they'd already committed to the season 4 arc, TNT stepped forward and picked it up for a fifth and final season to finish the series. They also picked it up 
for Crusade, which was the spin-off going in a different direction with a slightly different tone. So it seemed like great news. We were going to get more Babylon 5. The original series did end. Season 5 didn't end quite the way we hoped it would because they thought Season 4 was going to be the finale. They had to reshuffle so the main storylines were already wrapped up and done. And it was different storylines that they went through in Season 5. Not complete and whole inventions of the time, but things that would have been B-plots got promoted to the A-plot. So in some ways, Season 5 is not as satisfying as Seasons 2, 3, and 4, but Babylon 5 as a whole is still a very strong series, and like I said, heavily serialized if you like that kind of storytelling. I believe you can see it all on Amazon Prime right now if you'd like. Following that and some made-for-TV movies, Crusade launched also on TNT. There were issues behind the scenes, though. At the time, all creator J. Michael Straczynski knew is that TNT was demanding certain changes to the story that were not changes he was willing to make, and they were pushing things into directions he didn't want to go, or at least did not want to go at that time. And he decided he would rather make 13 episodes he was proud of than 110 episodes he was not proud of, and he pulled the plug and wrapped up Crusade after this 13-episode commitment was done. He since partnered with Cafe Press to release the Babylon 5 script books and Crusade. There's actually four volumes titled Crusade, What the Hell Happened? And he has learned since then that TNT picked up Babylon 5, hoping that the Babylon 5 audience would come over and watch their network and bring the numbers up. What they found is that the Babylon 5 audience would come over, watch Babylon 5, and then tune out again. So it wasn't picking up the network overall. They weren't going to wrestling or to the other shows on TNT. As a result, they kind of wanted to get out of the Babylon 5 business and actually committed to replacement shows in the second half of season one. The problem is that if TNT pulled the plug, they would have had to pay penalties. And if they didn't pull the plug, well, they were going to run out of money because they'd already committed to producing additional series to replace Crusade, even though it hadn't actually been canceled. So they made a conscious choice to make demands that they knew Straczynski would not be willing to conform to, to make him pull the plug so that it didn't put them in that financial position. So ultimately, what could have been a very engaging 110-episode series became an enjoyable 13-episode series, but not quite the same quality of series as we got in Babylon 5. Again, it's not because the creative team behind it had any less talent, or less drive, or less interest in any way. It's just that they were forced to make decisions that were bad for the show because the people paying for it wanted to sabotage the show and sabotage the creator's interest in it so that the creators would choose to take it off the air. And that plan was successful. As far as the show is concerned, the basic premise is that during Babylon 5, 
Earth made enemies. They were in a war. You're going to make friends and enemies. One of these enemies ended up releasing a plague on Earth that is going to kill the entire human species, or at least those that are still on the planet, unless they could find a cure. Crusade follows the crew of the Excalibur in that hunt for the cure. Those same Babylon 5 script books also release the plan that Straczynski had for this. The cure was just the launching point. It was going to be found surprisingly early in the run. And of course, the stories were going to continue with this crew doing various things. In this particular episode, it's all X-Files parody. Right from the start, it even opens up with text on screen stating the time, the location, the date, just like the X-Files episodes are known to do. So Visitors from Down the Street was written by series creator J. Michael Straczynski. He was a much bigger part of my childhood than I realized at the time. I wasn't reading credits yet. He was showrunner on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, as well as She-Ra, on the real Ghostbusters cartoon, on Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, a couple of seasons of Murder, She Wrote. He was the showrunner on the last two seasons of the 1980s Twilight Zone series. So a very healthy resume, even prior to Babylon 5. The same can't actually be said for Jerry Apoyan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, A-P-O-I-A-N. He's the director of this episode. And directing this episode of this series is his sole IMDb credit. So I have no idea who he is or what else he has ever done. Of the cast appearing in this episode, we have Gary Cole, who plays Captain Gideon. The IMDb says he's best known for playing Bill Owens in One Hour Photo, Reese Bobby in Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Office Space, he was Bill Lumberg. And in Dodgeball, he was Cotton McKnight. I will always know him primarily as Sheriff Lucas Buck in American Gothic. Others will know him as Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch movies. Either way, he's got 171 acting credits to his name. So, very well known. Lieutenant John Matheson is played by Daniel Day Kim who is second in command. He's also got a very healthy list of credits to his name. He was in Star Trek Voyager, the episode Blink of an Eye, which IMDb voters have inadvertently chosen as the best episode of the series. He was Gavin Park in 12 episodes of Angel, Tom Baker in 24, and Jin Kwan in Lost. Most recently, at least as far as TV is concerned, he appeared in 168 episodes of Hawaii 5 And last I heard, he left that series over a pay dispute because he was not getting paid as other actors of equal prominence but different ethnicity. Uh, similarly, Grace Park left around the same time for the same reasons, which 
really frustrated me. I was not a fan of Hawaii Five O, but looking at the cast, Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park were two of the three characters that I recognized, or performers I recognized, the third being Chai McBride. So the idea that it's the Caucasian cast members getting the biggest paychecks just points to problems in Hollywood, as far as I'm concerned. Now, there are three members of the guest cast here. Josh Clark plays Kendar. His only also known for is McFarland USA as Coach Jameson, but he does have 84 credits to his name, including Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Murder in the First, The Mentalist, mostly in one-time appearances. Francois Robertson is in Riverdale for the Tales of the City, The Minion, The Tracker, and We All Fall Down, as well as Supergirl, iZombie, V. She's got several credits to her name. She plays Lissa. And Durkani is played by Harry Van Gorkum, also known for Mortal Instruments, Tears of the Sun, Aging Cody Banks, and the 1997 Batman and Robin, but we'll try not to hold that against him. So in this episode, the Excalibur is out in unexplored territory, as is their mission. Go places we haven't seen before to try and find a cure for a plague, unlike anything we've seen before. They pick up a distress call, rescue the people inside, and that's Dracani and Lisa, who are fluent in English, and who are absolutely convinced that the human race has been manipulating events on their planet for centuries. Kendar eventually shows up in the cigarette-smoking man kind of role, the government agent who's there to keep them down. There's a lot of confusion with the Excalibur crew because they have no record of contact with this alien species, and yet this species has loads of mythology and evidence of them, pictures of Mount Rushmore, you know, burnt-out golf club, things like this. Eventually, pushing through everything that's going on, the crew discovers that, yeah, when this alien species discovered life on other planets, they not only tried to hide that from the citizens, but then eventually realized that, hey, we've got a lot of civil war, we've got a lot of strife, this is a species prone to scapegoating and paranoia. If we can blame everything on these outsiders, then we can keep the people under control, they will have that scapegoat, and they'll leave us alone. So it helps keep the government in power. They've been lying to the people and scapegoating humans, never dreaming that they'd actually encounter them as they did this time. So Gideon acts like he's just going to release them all to their own affairs, do their own thing, until he tracks down their homeworld after he's left them behind and deploys 20 landing probes with the Encyclopedia Galactica and a complete record of everything that's happened on the ship to tell the people the truth, that it's a very populated universe, and that the humans were scapegoats created by the government, specifically to keep it in control. So yeah, it's probably going to be as socially disruptive as Kirk talking a computer into melting down. But as he said, it's about being honest. And in the future, if they ever have legitimate and official interaction with these people and start to negotiate and have diplomatic relations, it would be nice if the people didn't hate Earth already for things that Earth had nothing to do with. 
So as the story goes, it's a, a fairly nice X-Files pastiche. There's a clear Mulder and Scully. These aliens don't have hair, but they do have tendrils, which is appropriately colored to match the hair. You know, the Lisa or the Scully equivalent has the red tendrils, for example. They've even been forced to dress in human clothes so that they're dressed like Mulder and Scully, and they have an explanation for that, saying, no, 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 this is being forced on us, it's not a natural style of dress. It is fairly well assembled, including giving an explanation for why Kendar lights up an actual cigarette near the end. So it is enjoyable, it's definitely got that Mulder and Scully feel. It does stand alone fairly well for something in the Babylon 5 universe. So if you're curious, it is worth checking out. Although generally speaking, the original Babylon 5 series is, I think, one of the best science fiction series in the history of television. And watching Crusade from start to finish will spoil that. So I have no problems recommending watching the entirety of Babylon 5. The first season may not feel like it's living up to the height of all the serialization. Every piece of that first season, every episode, is a piece of the jigsaw puzzle that will eventually become Babylon 5 and the story of it. It's just in that first season, the pieces are so far apart, you can't really see the big picture. So it doesn't feel too much like everything is being put together. At least not until you're watching it again down the road in retrospect. But yeah, this is an episode I can recommend, but really I'd recommend just watching the entire Babylon 5 universe, at least up to the end of Crusade. Now, as far as evaluating the science of this episode is concerned, the new science isn't really all that much. I mean, aside from the fact that these guys have probes that came out centuries ago and sent the transmissions back, I question how something close enough that they could have done that was somehow not already contacted. But it's a necessary piece of the puzzle, so I can kind of overlook it. Depends on how wide and how populated this place is. And, you know, frankly, it also depends a lot on what kind of probe technology they have. We know they don't have faster-than-light travel, but they could have extremely rapid sublight travel. All they really need is something that can go there and back twice in the span of 300 years. So we're pushing 75 light years at the most. So it's doable. But you can then question, if they had that technology to get there and back that far away, why have they not developed something further? And it could just well be that the government didn't want to prioritize that, and there's other factions and other people at the discussion and decision-making tables than what we saw here. We really just don't know enough about the society as a whole to rule that out. In any event, that's all we have to say about this particular episode. Join us next week when we look at The Sixth Extinction, Parts 1 and 2, the Season 7 premiere of The X-Files. Thank you for listening.